Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. This is episode 236. The podcast. Douglas Wilson, 236. I said that twice in case you were wandered into the wrong place. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, uh, the influence of Gary North on my thinking. Uh, the reason for this is Gary North just went went to be with the Lord a few weeks ago, and uh, and I was recently asked on a asked Doug thing about his influence on me. And I, so I, I looked, I, I went and looked it up in a, uh, I've got a book reading log that I keep. And I think it was, I forget the exact number, but I think it was something like 17 books. I read, I read and profited by uh, 17 books that Gary North wrote. And he was, um, he was a, an interesting writer. You didn't get bored you didn't doze off when you're reading Gary North. He was uh, uh, a handful, right? So uh, this happened. I'll give you a little a little autobiographical uh, treatment here. Um, I wound up um, as the pastor of a church in the late '70s, so about 1977. I found myself pastoring a church. And I was still in college at the time. I'd done my stint in the Navy. I was going through college. Found myself uh, the pastor of a little Jesus people uh, kind of operation, and I was finished with my studies in 1979. So I, I, I spent a summer, took a few classes at Regent Seminary in, in Vancouver in the summer of 79. Came back, uh, came back to Moscow and resumed um, teaching in the church that I had found myself the pastor of while I was still um, in school. So I, I began preaching in 1977 and was done with school in 79. And uh, the, the church I was pastoring grew uh, from like about 30 people uh, up to a few hundred, between two and 300 people. Um, and I, so I found myself um, pastoring this church, right? And and I, but but I found myself pastoring this church with a BA in philosophy and an MA in philosophy, and I'd gotten my Greek as part of my BA, but I didn't have I didn't have um, seminary education. I'd grown up in a godly home, so I knew a lot of um, practical biblical uh, things, but I didn't have a theological education. And uh, but then I found myself holding the bag on this uh, church and the pastor of this church uh, entering the 1980s. And so I decided, uh, as a consequence of the situation I was in, I decided that I was going to have to um, do, do an on-the-job, uh, get an on-the-job training education. I was going to have to do all my, my theology reading um, here in Moscow while I was pastoring the church. So I began a course of reading. I, I really wanted to, um, uh, I, I was really hungry to learn. And so I began uh, a pace of reading through the 80s. And somewhere in the 80s, someone referred me to or gave me a copy of, uh, 
the first book by a Reconstructionist that I read, which was um, David Chilton's Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. And this was an answer to Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Um, so I read that book, and then, to be frank, I ate it out of the can with a spoon. It was, I just loved that book. It was just really good. And uh, this was the early 80s, and I started reading the Reconstructionist uh, stuff. And I was not a Calvinist at the time, and I was pretty prejudiced against Calvinism for a number of reasons. And uh, but the central one having to do with the limit, limited atonement, I began and and in this period I began reading Gary North. So I was reading Rush Dooney, I was reading Gary North, uh, some Bonson, uh, some Jim Jordan. I was just reading all this stuff, and uh, the the reconstruct. I was learning an awful lot from them. At the same time, uh, uh, I. They were a quarrelsome lot, and I didn't. And and sometimes their views were a bit extreme, so I wasn't really in a position to um, hand their books out. But I read them myself and internalized a lot of uh, what they were laying down. A lot of what they were teaching. Now, as years went by, I so I never called myself um, a reconstructionist. I. I met Rush Dooney once at a conference. I met Greg Bonson at a conference once. I never met Gary North, but Gary North and I clashed a handful of times online over his uh, disapprobation of um, my involvement in classical Christian education. He thought the classical uh, um, aspect of it was going to uh, it, he thought the classical part of it was humanistic and was going to devour the Christian part. That's it. So we had a few uh, clashes uh, from time to time online, but I never met him. Having never met him and having clashed with, clashed with him a few times, I can say that I was greatly indebted to him for um, sort of the default uh, assumption that that I think every Vantillian has to have, which is I wonder what the Bible says about this, or I wonder, uh, even better, I wonder where the Bible addresses this. You assume that the Bible addresses this particular problem that we're facing. Where does the Bible talk about it? How does the Bible talk about it? So, if you, uh, if you, so uh, I'm sort of uh, giving a, uh, a posthumous hat tip to Gary North, thanking him for um, his. Um, his contributions to my theological development. If someone said, "What would you, uh, what would you recommend uh, people read? Where would you start?" I would, um, I would encourage people to. Um, uh, he edited and contributed to a book called Foundations of Christian Scholarship, uh, which was uh, quite good. If you want to read a very popular and pithy. Book seventy-five questions your Bible instructors pray you won't ask. <laughs> um, that was that was fun. Um, uh, oh, just and maybe uh, the Sinai strategy uh, would be uh, good. He did a number of economic commentaries of the Old Testament, and um, so there you go. Continuing on with podcast two thirty-six. Uh, we come now to, and this is why I would welcome you to, Hamartiology 101. As we've mentioned before, sometimes words for sins 
are not words that necessarily mean sins. Our word today uh, means to turn aside or to avoid, and of course the sinfulness depends on what you are avoiding, right? Or the sinfulness or lack of it depends on what you are avoiding. The word in question today is ektrefo, meaning turn aside or avoid. Ektrefo. Now, the majority of our usages today are sinful. Most of the time, uh, this word, turn away, turn aside, refers to something that's sinful. Not always, but most of the time. So, for example, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. That's 1 Timothy 1.6. Now, contextually, what they have turned aside from was a pure heart, a good conscience, and an unfeigned faith. That's in the verse right above. Pure heart, good conscience, unfeigned faith. And that would be obviously no good to turn aside from that. And to turn aside from that to vain jangling. Obviously, that's a sinful choice. Another bad one would be found in 1 Timothy 5.15. For some have already turned aside, there it is, for some are already turned aside after Satan. So, clearly, I don't have to explain this one, right? Turning aside after Satan is not what you want. But looking at the context is still helpful because those who turned aside after Satan were turning aside from what? Well, if you look in the passage right above, they were turning aside from marriage, they were turning aside from childbearing, and they were turning aside from keeping house. So when a woman turns aside from marriage, turns aside from childbearing, and turns aside from keeping house from her domestic duties, what is she doing? She's turning aside after Satan. Here's another one. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. 2 Timothy 4.4. These are people turning away from sound teachers, and they're turning to fables. They're turning away from sound teachers. They're turning toward uh, unsound teachers. So if you turn if you turn 180 degrees, if you're facing north and you turn 180 degrees, you are turning south. If you do a 180 degree pivot away from sound teachers, when you're done with that pivot, you're facing unsound teachers. Then there's this, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. There's your turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Hebrews 12:13. This looks like it's referring to someone who's turned out of the way because he is lame and because the way is rocky and hard. So I think of that, pla- that passage in um, Pilgrim's Progress uh, where uh, they get off the path and they're, they're, they're trying to get to a place where it's easy on their feet. And that's how they wind up out of the path. Uh, that appears to be the image here in Hebrews 12:13. Now, a godly, I mentioned that there are, that the word could be used in a godly way. A godly use of the word can be seen in 1 Timothy 6.20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding, there it is, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called. So everything, everything reduces to what you're turning away from. It boils down to what is it that you're avoiding? If you're avoiding good things, if you're turning aside away from if you're turning aside away from good things, then it's bad. If you're turning aside from bad things, then it's good. So my book review uh, today is oh book review for what? Well, this is the podcast episode two thirty six. My book review for 
podcast, uh, episode uh, 236, is Chesterton's Tavern by Belmont. Uh, Chesterton's Tavern by a gent, what goes by the name of Belmont. I've, I neglected to write down his first name. Sorry about that. Um, this is just a new release by Canon Press. I uh, packed, uh, picked it up, I think, probably right when it was printed and, um, and read through it. It was just a very, uh, uh, very interesting, very engaging book. So what, um, what Belmont has done, and he's a, he's a fellow to do it, is he knows Chesterton's uh, corpus well enough to know if he, if he um, pictured Chesterton sitting in a tavern on a given night of the week, and each evening that you showed up there, let's say, I forget what night it was, like Thursday night or Friday night, if you showed up there and Chesterton's seated at the tavern holding forth, talking about different things, what um, uh, what Belmont has done is he has gathered up uh, a number of quotations from Chesterton's writings and put them all in one conversation so that if he's talking about um, uh, this particular topic, he's got a topical uh, range of quotations from Chesterton on that topic, and he puts it in a narrative form. It's not. It's not a. Um, it's not like a historical fiction where he's supplying a ton of. He's not. Um, he doesn't try to to describe how Chesterton was pulling on his pipe or how he adjusted his cape or, you know, whatever. It doesn't go into a lot of that, but it does situate these conversations at a tavern. Um, and he spends a lot of time uh, getting into or, or delving into what Chesterton thought topically on these, uh, on these various subjects. It was a very quick read, a very engaging read. Um, some people like reading books of quotations. I, I like it there. And there are some, uh, there are some books of quotations out there for Chesterton. And uh, I've enjoyed those. Uh, some people might not like reading quote after quote after quote. And so they like to have some little minimal narrative uh, where that is placed in. And that's, w- that's where um, this book would come in handy. Chesterton's Tavern by Belmont. Before I go today, I want to tell you about a new documentary that Canon is releasing from my daughter, Rebecca Merkel. It is called Even Exile, and it comes out on May 6th. Even Exile is a movie about the failure of feminism and the future of femininity. Be sure to check it out exclusively on Canon Plus. Here's a quick look. What does it mean to be a woman? Apparently nothing at all. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? I can't. I'm not a biologist. Our culture hates the idea of boundaries. My body, my joy! We just want there to be no rules, no lines, no definitions. As a woman, what is that? Was to each their own. We're Christian women, and we want to live in the way God told us to. But we're looking out over this current playing field and wondering where on earth we are supposed to stand. Our daughters are born into the ruins of what used to be a Christian nation, and we are raising them in the wreckage of the West. What does obedience look like in this madhouse? 